I'm John Torek. And I'm Danny Sullivan. And you're listening to Speaking of Design. Bringing you the stories of the engineers and architects who are transforming the world one project at a time. Today we'll meet an architect who spent a year researching how we provide healthcare inside a prison environment. While much of the data paints a bleak picture, we'll also look at the role that design is playing to improve outcomes in our communities. It is tough, but I think also what gets me excited about it is I think we're at a moment in time where there is some momentum about starting to do this right. That's Dave Redemsky, an architect and health planning principal in HDR Chicago office. He's talking about the complexities of designing healthcare facilities in U.S. prisons. He got his first taste of designing health facilities in a prison setting after the federal courts placed the California state prison system under a federal receivership in 2005. Essentially, this required the state prison system to improve its medical care to make sure it followed the Eighth Amendment, which forbids cruel and unusual punishment of the incarcerated. There was a large coopetition, they called it, um, three design-build teams that lived together in the same space. You had to share all your information. You couldn't hide your information from team to team. And I was part of HDR's team to talk mostly medical and starting to work with our correction staff and as well as meeting with the doctors and nurses and administrators who work in that facility or those types of facilities. It was just a completely different way of thinking about providing health care. It was really, really interesting. It was a huge problem to solve, and I just really enjoyed the building type. The most obvious differences relate to safety. It's really two worlds that don't want to live together, but they have to. I mean, healthcare is lots of sharp, small metal things, which is the last thing you want roaming free around a prison environment. So, I mean, there's a ton of things within healthcare that can be weaponized. If you even think about how a hospital bed works, there's lots of moving parts and pieces. It's just a a completely different way of thinking about uh, how to provide care. And those considerations also impact design. We were kind of laying out a medical unit, and I was working with some of our corrections designers, and they would say, oh, no, no, you can't do it that way because what will happen is a series of inmates will go over here and start a fight so their fourth friend on the other side of the unit can do something while the corrections officers are dealing with the people having the fight. And I was just kind of flabbergasted by that because I... Like I said, I didn't even think that way. Beyond safety, Dave discovered other issues unique to prison health care. The nurses talking about needing to incentivize wellness. So what they were talking about is if you or I go into a hospital, we can't wait to go home. We want to be out of there in our own environment. We just don't want to be in a hospital. For an inmate, it's the exact opposite. They get a private room. They get special attention. They get special meals. There's no incentive for them to leave that environment. So a lot of that was the nurses trying to say, how do we create incentives for them to want to get better? Pretty quickly, he found himself hooked on this type of design. But Dave's interest was in the challenge of improving inmate health care and figuring out what works and what doesn't. So he applied for a fellowship with his firm, HDR, to research the topic more heavily. So I thought that this was a really good opportunity to explore the idea of correctional health care. The abstract that I proposed was really looking at the environment of care because inmates are treated both in a prison facility, they're also treated in a community hospital. 
So what I wanted to look at was either of the two environments better for serving that population than the other. The topic seemed like a long shot for a fellowship at an architecture and engineering firm. But in a company-wide webcast, the CEO announced Dave's abstract as one of three winners. The handful of us that were working in the field office just all kind of, kind of, you know, jumped in surprise. And I thought, well, now I actually have to do it. You know, now that I won, the reality set in. So he spent a year sifting through 744 online records on the topic of healthcare in the prison environment. He narrowed the scope from there to 169 pieces of literature to review in full. His scope didn't include jails, which are more temporary in nature, nor juvenile facilities or international prisons. To help organize the research, he broke the subject down into several types of healthcare, including ambulatory in general, elder, women's, emergency trauma, mental health, dental, and palliative, including hospice. He also evaluated and compared different models of prison healthcare, including treatment at on-site facilities, regional correctional healthcare facilities, and community hospitals. His findings are jaw-dropping to anyone unfamiliar with the U.S. prison system. One of the first things you should know is how many people this affects. Here's Dave presenting his findings to some of his colleagues. There's about 1.5 million people in prison in the U.S. and Currently today, there's about 6 million people that either are currently in prison or were in prison at one time. We have 25% of the world's population of prisoners. We have a third of the women's prisoners. And uh, about a quarter of those are incarcerated for nonviolent drug offenses. So it's not all the most horrible people that you may be thinking about. Um, big number there is about the elderly inmates are expected to reach 400,000 by the year 2030. So much like the free world population, the inmate population is getting older and sicker. They're also very ill. For most chronic conditions, disabilities, mental health conditions, communicable disease, two to three and sometimes even four times higher prevalence rate in prisons than it is in the free world. That staggering number of prisoners and their generally poor health is creating a high cost to society. Here in the U.S., we spend about $77 billion to incarcerate. Uh, about 10% of that is for inmate health care. If you find yourself questioning why we even worry about the health of inmates, there's certainly a segment of society that sees prison as purely punishment. But there are two big reasons we all should care, emotions set aside. First, is the 1976 Estelle Gamble Supreme Court decision. What the court ruled is that states cannot be deliberately indifferent to an inmate's medical need. And they define deliberate indifference by three things. An inmate has the right to access care, they have the right to the care that is ordered, and they have a right to a professional medical judgment. So what they're saying is that if a state cannot withhold physician-ordered medical treatment as a means of punishment, that would be considered deliberately indifferent. The second reason, back to Dave's presentation to his colleagues. But the biggest thing about this and why we have to care about it is 95% are released. These aren't people that are in there for life. The World Health Organization actually calls this a public health issue. Because they're getting out, if we don't treat them while they're in the prison system, they're gonna bring those conditions right back into the communities. And how well are we doing? The literature Dave researched found that in 2004, 232 state facilities and one federal facility were under court orders to improve their conditions. To be clear, the conditions of health care facilities in prisons aren't creating the problem. 
The problem stems from the health issues such a large percentage of inmates are facing when they first enter the system. Many times, the types of patients who are being incarcerated, they've never been to a doctor before. That's Cindy McCullough, director of evidence-based design at HDR. Cindy spent more than 30 years as a nurse before becoming a health consultant. So they're finding out they have things like diabetes or congestive heart failure or a communicable disease like TB or have diabetes and it's never been managed and a lot of the mental health issues that accompany that. Dave explained how treating people who've never been to a doctor before creates an even greater challenge for medical staff in prisons. Another part of it is for many inmates, their health literacy is very low. So trying to get them to understand their conditions and how to manage their conditions, especially if it's something chronic, can be a challenge. Many times inmates will look at the nursing and physician staff as being part of the same system that's incarcerating them. So they don't necessarily look at them differently than they do the corrections officers. So that's sometimes a challenge. But the research presents another trend that's perhaps even more alarming and probably more systemic than the prevalence of chronic conditions. Mental health is a huge component of corrections. Half of the people in prison have a mental health issue, at least. And of that half, at least 70% have a substance abuse disorder. So mental health treatment and mental health care and mental health issues are a huge part of the corrections environment. And that goes absolutely back to access to care. Historical data shows that the increase in inmates with mental health conditions coincided with fewer resources available for treatment. There was a, a movement in the 1960s and 70s of deinstitutionalization where we started to close a lot of the state-run mental health facilities because some of them were in some pretty horrible conditions. But the idea behind closing it was that we would then come back and backfill with community-based outpatient mental health treatment. Um, unfortunately, that never happened. Dave's colleague in Chicago, David Bostwick, is a justice consultant with 30 years of experience designing prisons, jails, courts, and other law enforcement facilities. He's also contributing author on the National Institute of Corrections and U.S. Department of Justice publication, Jail Design Guide. What has happened over the last 30 years is that mental health institutions have become defunded, and so the, the number of available beds for people with a mental illness has gone down dramatically. And if you look at a curve showing the number of people or the number of jail beds in our country, you'll see a curve that goes up quite sharply from 1970 until today. If you overlay a curve showing the number of mental health beds available, well, it's an inverse curve. The direct correlation those numbers reveal leaves a rather obvious but sobering reality. There's been no rise in mental illness in our country. What we've done is we've closed the mental health institutions, defunded those, and so those folks who have issues are now ending up in jail. More than anything, that may be the biggest finding in the research. It may also be the area where designers have the greatest opportunity to improve care, lower costs for taxpayers, and reduce recidivism. When you remember that 95% of inmates will get out of prison, it makes you think more about what the true purpose of a prison should be. So the question is, when that person comes back to your community, do you want that person to be in better shape, better condition than when they enter jail or in worse condition? Because the jail can be used as a tool to address mental health issues, to address substance abuse issues, to help with reintegration back into the community, or you can just lock someone up for a long period of time.
time, and they come out having the same issues that they had before they went into jail, and sometimes uh, they can come out worse. So how, then, do you design a prison environment that's conducive to treatment and healing, particularly with regard to behavioral health? In the U.S., behavioral health is often the all-encompassing term used for everything from mental disorders such as schizophrenia or bipolar disorder to substance abuse and addiction. Historically, prisons haven't been designed to treat behavioral health, but instead, by default, act as warehouses for inmates to serve their sentences. This often creates conditions that can do further damage to a prisoner with a mental illness. For example, Dave Redemsky said solitary confinement often worsens an episode for an inmate with mental illness, and medical professionals suggest it can create a never-ending cycle in the justice system. A lot of facilities will put the mentally ill in administrative segregation, where they're locked up 23 hours a day, they don't have access to televisions or any type of diversion at all. They're just locked in the cell. They only get out for an hour for exercise. And what that starts to do is it creates this cycle where they go into segregation, they go into crisis mode because they're isolated for 23 hours. They then have to get sent to a hospital so they can treat them and get them out of crisis. So they'll do that. And then when they get sent back to the prison, they send them right back into segregation. So it creates this cycle of segregation to hospital, back to segregation to hospital, back to segregation. The Department of Justice issued new guidelines for using restrictive housing in 2016. David Bostwick authored an article about the new guidelines for American Jails magazine. The new guidelines are put out by the Department of Justice really focus on how to use restrictive housing. And what the DOJ guidelines are saying is that the use of restrictive housing, and by that I mean being in a lockdown alone in a cell for 23 hours a day, its use should be very limited. And it should be used primarily to protect other inmates, uh, protect an inmate from themselves and not necessarily used for punishment. Which begs the question, what would make an ideal environment to help rehabilitate an inmate, especially one with a mental illness, to help prepare them to return to the community? You know, there is some literature that shows that very punitive environments really don't help (laughs) make people behave any better. They can actually make it worse. That's Dr. Jerry Britton, director of research at HDR and a member of the American Institute of Architects, Design, and Health Leadership Group. I have um, focused really on the built environment and the impact of that on people. So really the first questions I always ask in terms of design are, what are the impacts going to be on people? Her research spans everything from hospitals to schools and office buildings to prisons. Many of the conclusions apply to all of the above. More access to the outdoors, light, natural light, views. Interestingly, there's actually a lot of literature about exposure to nature, so to speak, but there is a restorative effect to that. It's been well documented. Um, In fact, there are places now that are actually prescribing it for people. With regard to prison design, there can be differing viewpoints on the purpose of the facility which is why Jerry's research can provide valuable input when it comes to making decisions. Those who would say, well, it should be a punitive environment, 
the data just doesn't support that. The data really shows that the less punitive environment does produce better results for many people. That said, I think we, being realistic, we have to acknowledge that there may be some people who, no matter how much treatment there is, it won't work. And that's why these facilities have to exist. Dave Redemsky said designing a therapeutic environment has pragmatic benefits for prison operations as well. I think what's starting to influence the design more now is bringing in some of the ideas around evidence-based design and things like that, you know, views of nature, sound control, air quality. So that part is starting to come into the corrections world because then it can reduce the time that they're in medical care and get them back to general population because the costs are high to treat them medically. So the sooner we can get them back to general population, the less costs. As David Bostwick reminded us, the goal of improving behavioral health treatment in prison is to reduce the number of inmates who return. And so their hope is that Having a comprehensive approach, they can reduce recidivism in the community and hopefully create a healthier community, whereby if a person has a substance abuse issue, if they get the right programming, if they get the right treatment, then maybe they can kick their addiction and become a productive member of the community again. Another colleague of David Dembski's, Greg Cook, was the first architect to become a certified correctional health professional by the National Commission on Correctional Healthcare. Through NCCHC, as well as his own work, he's become familiar with successful models for prison healthcare. This includes how you design spaces for the treatment of mental illness. We want to make sure that we provide a variety of spaces within a facility like this so that different methods of treatment can be provided under sort of the cover of a single roof. Small group sessions are less effective if they're in a larger than needed room. You need to be considerate of acoustics and privacy. In these sorts of total institutions, often there's very little opportunity for an inmate to find any sort of quiet or solace. So if they're undergoing some sort of stressful situation, how can they go out and decompress? How can they find a quiet place to collect their thoughts when they're constantly surrounded by 8, 10, or 12 people? It's not a simple one-size-fits-all approach, but safely designing a variety of spaces can help inmates feel like they're making choices, reducing anxiety, and avoiding confrontation. So on the design side, what I like to focus on is providing as many of these unique types of spaces that you can. Obviously, there are cost considerations there, and there are some space considerations as well, but it's really important to provide as much variety within those treatment spaces with regards to scale and even indoor versus outdoor space so that those different treatment methodologies can be applied. Jerry Britton said improving the environment isn't just to the benefit of the inmates. It's also important for the well-being of the staff who work there. And then we have some staff goals in mind as well in terms of creating a more humane work environment for them. It's a hard place to work, uh, you know, daily stress. I think that's actually been demonstrated in hospital environments, is that the better the staff condition is, the better care the patients get. And I would imagine that that would definitely apply here as well. Evidence-based design is making its way into the correctional world because it brings bottom line benefits. Dr. Britton gave an example of a project her team worked on in Virginia, designed to rehabilitate former inmates 
who've been committed to a treatment facility before they are released. When it comes down to it, there's a strong human argument and there's actually a strong financial argument as well for providing the opportunity for rehabilitation and to do so in a humane way. The Commonwealth of Virginia, for those who are confined in the facility, spends well over $100,000 a year to keep them in the facility. While if they can be safely released and move under the parole system, it's a fraction of that. So there's a huge cost savings to rehabilitate these folks as well as many of them have been very successful. So I think there is a track record there that shows that, yes, the treatment programs can have a positive effect. Cindy McCullough, the former nurse who transitioned to a career in the design world, recently worked on a partnership between Parkland Hospital and the Dallas County Jail. The program dedicated medical staff at a new correctional health facility with regular programming for mental health care. Previously, inmates received their medical care at Parkland Hospital. Now trips to the public hospital are limited to emergency care and major surgeries. And the purpose for that was to provide better care for the inmates and limit the number of trips to the Parkland's ED and inpatient stays. They wanted to keep them there. And every time someone, and if you think about these 120,000 visits they're seeing right now within the jail in their medical unit there, You'd have to transport them somewhere. You'd have the cost of that. You'd have to send the deputies with them, and they have to remain with them while they're receiving treatment. So, so this becomes a huge impact to cost, and I think that they did it very well. In addition to limiting uncomfortable interactions between public and prison patients at Parkland Hospital, the partnership also created a specialized correctional nursing program at the jail. Cindy said having nursing expertise to provide regular health care to inmates on site will help improve patient outcomes. And it's just designed to provide the education and experience needed to become a highly skilled correctional nurse. And their core content really is about safety and the legal ethical aspects of correctional health care. Again, I think that we are in the general population. We are doing many of these same things. We just don't have as secure as an environment. But we run into the same types of issues with mental health patients, especially in emergency departments across the country. Cindy said having nursing expertise to provide regular health care to inmates on site will help improve patient outcomes. And I think that's really going to have a huge impact by the time they leave, that we've managed that care, and especially with the mental health population, because that's probably the reason that they got in trouble in the first place that led to them being in jail. So it would help decrease that recidivism rate when we're doing something like this and managing this care better. Many of these solutions are designed to make for a more successful reentry into the community because Dave Rudemski's research often comes back to that key statistic. 95% of the people incarcerated will get out at some point. It's a small percentage that are in there for life. And community reentry is a huge, huge problem because most are released with a couple of phone numbers and two weeks worth of medications and a couple hundred dollars and thank you very much, you're on your own. Greg Cook also stressed how Dave Rudemski's research illustrates a need for more facilities to ease that transition, particularly when someone with a mental health issue has an episode. 
And it's sort of on that return that I think is the opportunity for this new type of facility. So the inmate has left but is having an issue. We don't want law enforcement to have to go out and pick them up and return them back into the booking area and book them into the jail. We want them to be able to come back to that door and say, I have a problem and I need help. And we want to be able to provide that help. And then you can expand it then to anyone in the community and say this is a place where you can come if you're if you're having a mental health crisis if you are having a substance abuse issue there's a door for you and there's help on the other side of that door easier said than done maybe but well worth the investment as a society now the logistics of that i think we're working through now but to me that's a real opportunity for us to use our tax dollars in the very best way to provide treatment and keep inmates out of the jail, which is so costly. It just makes a lot more sense to provide treatment in this sort of alternative environment. After spending a year researching the topic, Dave analyzed the perspectives of hundreds of healthcare providers, behavioral health specialists, prison operators, and law enforcement personnel. I think there's just a great opportunity to bring those people into the fold in this environment and really talk about how standardizing operations, how using data to inform what you're doing, at looking at new ways of providing care, at seeing what people are doing in Europe and in other parts of the country can really help create a system that's not only more cost-effective and could limit the number of people in prison, but it also won't affect public safety that we'll still be putting the bad people that are truly bad people behind bars, but we won't be criminalizing the mentally ill. Through his fellowship, Dave found there isn't a single approach to prison health care that will fit every community. I think it's an issue of population and access. So if you're in a state with a smaller inmate population, let's say Wyoming, just pulling one out of my hat, it would be difficult to justify building a large medical complex behind the prison fence just because there's not enough volume to justify the cost. Whereas a state with a large prison population, let's say again California, where there it makes more financial sense because you have the volumes to justify building some of that behind the fence. And he said there are other factors to consider. Then there's also an issue of distance, whereas most jails are located in proximity to where there may be a health facility. Most prisons are in rural locations, so the access to a hospital may be quite some distance away. So then it gets into a safety issue that if you didn't have an emergency and you needed to stabilize, you know, how quickly could you get them to the nearest hospital? Even though the topic can be rather stigmatized, Dave said he's looking forward to being part of the solution. It is tough, but I I think also what gets me excited about it is I think we're at a moment in time where there is some momentum about starting to do this right. And I think we have a really strong ability to help direct what this is going to become and help them solve these difficult problems. I mean, not only from an architecture side, but from an operation standpoint, from a data collection standpoint. I, I, I think we're right at the beginning, in my opinion, of a big movement towards helping 
solve this problem, whether it be better access to mental health care or better access to health, community-based diversion treatment facilities. And so I think that's the part that really gets me the most excited is you can almost feel the momentum starting to happen. For more information on this podcast, visit hdrinc.com slash speakingofdesign. There you'll find links to Dave Rudemski's research and more information about behavioral health and healthcare in corrections. If you like what you heard, be sure to rate us or leave feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.